You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Tony Meyer. For more information on other LifePoint Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. I feel like way too often we settle for Christianity that's really a Sunday morning Christianity. That's kind of separate boxes of our lives. It doesn't uh, necessarily infiltrate into every aspect of our lives. And we've really been contending over the last four weeks to, to see the power of God be relevant to our daily lives. We've been asking the question, what would it look like if a group of people actually believed that the power of God meant something for their lives and could actually transform the lives of those in our city? We actually believed what we preached. The good news is truly good for our kids, for our families, for our marriages, for the marketplace. You know, over, honestly, my, my last year and a half of being pastor of this church, I've invited a lot of different friends and leaders that I've respected to come and, and share Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. But this, this weekend's really special to me because this morning I get to introduce a guest that's family. So this is my family, it's your family. So this morning I'm introducing to you some, some new family this morning I get to introduce my brother to you all. His name is Tony Meyer. Him and his wife actually moved here six years ago to pioneer the, the Chi Alpha at University of Iowa. They've just been bold risk takers, faith-filled pioneers, people like that, that are just willing to trust God and, and be obedient to his leading. I have a great deal of respect for both of them. And so I, I just felt, I felt prompted to invite him to come and share and to speak specifically into this theme, to speak into this series to really launch us uh, for the next nine months to what God's doing in our church. So he's going to be with us this morning. He's going to be with us tonight. Now, Tony and his, uh, his wife, they're on staff, actually, at a, uh, an Assembly of God church in Iowa City called Life Church. And they're just rocking this church. is doing amazing things in their community. So would you give it up for my brother, Tony? Awesome. Amen. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? Is this on? That's good. Hey, it is such an honor, such a privilege for me to be here. And um, I don't say that everywhere I go, so you need to know that. But it, it truly is. This church uh, uh, is really special to us and uh, Kayla and I. When uh, Pastor Drew and Tanya moved here a number of years ago, about over seven and a half years ago, this church welcomed them into the community. They didn't know anybody welcomed them into the community. And as a brother, when, when, when your family is moving somewhere else, you're, you're nervous for them. You're like, you know, are, are they going to make friends? <laughs> is everyone going to like them and be nice to them? And, and you guys have, so just thank you for taking care of them. And, and obviously another part that makes this, this place so dear to us is, is, is having uh, Pastor Drew and Tanya as your, your lead pastors. They, I've known them for a long time. I've known I've known Drew for his entire life. <laughs> and he's been like a brother to me. So And Tanya I've known for a really long time too. She uh I remember when her family moved to town from Chicago when they were in elementary when we were in elementary school and I got to watch uh Drew and Tanya's relationship blossom throughout the years. And I'd like to think that I had a small part to play in their relationship. It's a conversation for a, a different day, but you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. And um I want to introduce my family to you this morning. My wife, Kayla, is in the back there with our, our three-and-a-half-month-old son, Dean. Uh, she is a, the treasure of my life. Uh, God gave her to me. 
without uh, me really knowing that I needed her. And so she is such a blessing. Uh, my partner in life, in family, and in ministry, she's just uh, an amazing woman. Uh, we have a four-year-old daughter, Evie, and a three-and-a-half-month-old son, Dean. I think, oh, we got a picture there. This is Dean's uh, first week in church. Uh, he's two weeks old. He actually gave his life to Jesus that Sunday. You can tell. He is wiped out. He is wiped out from the altar call. Um, and uh, I think I have another picture here of Evie and Dean. This kind of <laughs> defines their relationship. Uh, she loves him. She absolutely loves him. And he's learning to love her too. But, yeah, they're uh, such a, a blessing. And we just, we just love our family. Um, you know, we were here last uh, in August of 2017, and um, I was so moved by the service that Sunday. Um, the message was great, but I wasn't, it wasn't that. Or worship was great, but it wasn't that. There was just a, a tenderness and an open to the spirit of God in this place. And I think that's something that's really marked this church and marked you. This openness to say, God, what is it that you want from me? God, what is it that you want to do with my life? And it's interesting to me how this life-giving message of the gospel can at times become old news and calloused to us and become just an old story or something that was for me 10 years ago or 5 years ago or 30 years ago. But this is, if there's nothing else that we have, it's, it's the gospel and that's, that's it. That's what we build our lives on. Everything else is put upon that foundation of the gospel. And it's not old news. Christ crucified for our sin to wash away our sin, but then to be raised to life again so God's spirit can live inside of us and then come upon us in the baptism of the Holy Spirit so we can live a life of power and boldness and not just scraping by and scrimping by. But, you know, I, I feel like oftentimes as believers and even as unbelievers, we, we have a lot of misconceptions about who God is and who we are in him. There's a lot of lies that we can believe. And so this morning I want to I speak to that. I have a message entitled, Don't Believe the Lies. So if you take notes, that's, that's what it's called. And I'm going to unpack a few lies. Uh, we don't have time to go through uh, the, the huge list of lies that we could believe. But we're going to go through three lies that I believe that we either believe about God or we believe about ourselves. It's important that we know the truth. Would you agree? The truth is important. Nobody came into this morning, nobody woke up today and was like, man, I hope I go to church and, and they tell me a bunch of lies. Right? I don't think anybody was here like, yeah, that, that sounds amazing. That sounds so great. But we value truth. That's why if someone ever states a fact, a lot of people around all of a sudden get out their phones and they start Googling that and say, is that true what they just said? Well, I guess that's what our family is like uh, at Christmas time. Um, <laughs> everything is fact-checked thoroughly. Um, but we, we have a high value on truth. That's why I believe the thing about deception is it's deceiving, right? No one is willingly deceived. That's the nature of, 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 of a lie. And that's why it's so paramount that we know the truth. Because when we know the truth, Jesus says the truth sets us free. When we know the truth, the, the lie just seems honestly so silly in light of the truth, doesn't it? You know, growing up, uh, we just... There was, as kids, there's certain things that you just pine over. For us, it was the original Nintendo. It was the Nintendo Entertainment Center. We just, man, we were like, God, if I could just have a, a Nintendo, my life would be, my life would be complete, right? 
Um, but we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and if we did have extra money, it was most certainly not going to go towards a Nintendo. And so we just would find friends' houses to go to to play Nintendo or whatever. But one Christmas, we had this aunt, and I think we all have an aunt or uncle like this who buys things for children without maybe consulting the parents first, <laughs> like a drum set or something. And um, she bought us a Nintendo. I can still remember the spot on the carpet in which I was standing at my Uncle Jesse's house, and I opened, we opened the wrapping paper, and we saw this Nintendo, and I thought, I can... I can die now. My life is, my life is perfect. This is great. This is amazing. And so we took that Nintendo home, and like every kid, we had an inability to regulate ourselves, and we just were like, eat, sleep, breathe Nintendo. And so my mom saw very quickly that we needed to have some boundaries on this. And so she said, okay, kids, you cannot play Nintendo. Here's a rule that you cannot play Nintendo until I get home from work. And, uh, when, you get, when I get home from work, we'll have supper, and then that evening we can all play Super Mario or whatever. And I thought, does that sound okay? And we're like, oh, sure, Mom. Yeah, great. And uh, she said, oh, and by the way, I'm going to know if you've played because I have a hidden camera set up in the house. <laughs> and we're thinking what all of you are thinking. There's no camera. <laughs> There's no camera. Yeah, okay, Mom, great. And so the next day we got home, we threw our backpacks down, went and got our shark uh, fruit snacks, and we went and sat down, and we turned on the Nintendo, Nintendo right away, and we played away until 10 minutes before Mom got home. We shut it off, and we got out our schoolwork and acted like good little girls and boys. And Mom came home, and she said, why did you guys play Nintendo? We said, we didn't play Nintendo. She said, yes, you absolutely did. I saw you on the camera playing Nintendo. And said, Mom, there's no camera. She's like, yes, there is, and I saw you. And we thought, oh boy. She said, if you, if you play again tomorrow, and I catch you, see you in the camera playing again tomorrow, that's it. We're going to ground you for a week. So I thought, maybe there's a camera. <laughs> and so I remember we're looking all over the house for this camera. We're looking like in the crawl space where she wouldn't even have been able to see if we were playing Nintendo or not. I'm like looking, looking all over. We came to the conclusion there's no camera. She's bluffing. The next day we came home, we're like, no camera, grab our fruit snacks and hit the power button and turn it on and start playing. Ten minutes before she gets home, shut it off and get out our homework. And she says, okay, that's it. That's it. No more Nintendo for a week. I saw you guys playing on the camera. I saw you. And then you lied about it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, there's a, there's a hidden camera in this house. <laughs> it is somewhere in this house. And it's always watching me. So, like, no matter what I did after that, I was always like, where is it? You know, there's a camera. <laughs> Years later, I remember having a conversation with my sister, and I said, Lord, do you remember when mom had that camera set up at the house? And she could see when we were playing Nintendo. Do you remember that? And she goes, what are you talking about? I said, the hidden camera. Remember mom had the, she said, are you being serious right now? I said, well, yeah, of course. How else would she have known that we were playing? And she said, Tony, mom came home. She put her hand on top of the Nintendo, and if it was warm, she knew that you guys were playing. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, so there's, there's no camera then. <laughs> All these years, wasted years. I remember feeling so silly when the truth was revealed to me. And by the way, parents, those types of lies are perfectly okay. Uh, God, is, God overlooks those type of lies. Um, but it, the lie seems so ridiculous when the truth is revealed. And oftentimes, the, the, the same is true in our walks with the Lord. We believe things. We find ourselves believing things 
because we're maybe uncertain about the truth, and then God reveals the truth to us. And I, I thank God that he doesn't shame us and be like, how could you? How, how could you? But you got, God is so gracious and loving towards us that he just shows us the way and invites us to come along. So this morning, the big idea is this. Who you believe God is and who you believe you are in him will greatly influence how you live your life. It will greatly influence, good or bad, it will greatly influence the way you live your life. One of my favorite quotes is by A.W. Tozer. It says this, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Who you believe God is and who you believe you are in him will have a great effect on your life. If you believe that God is this angry tyrant who's just waiting for you to mess up, you're not going to take any chances, any risks. You're going to be constantly having this fear of failure, feeling like God is disappointed with you. If you feel like God is indifferent about your life or about you, you're going to have a very difficult time trusting that God would even have a love for you. Or maybe you believe that God is, just because God is so loving, that God, it doesn't really matter what I do, because God is so loving and grace will cover it. So there's no, there's no responsibility on my part. And all these things, on each side of the pendulum, man, will greatly influence our life. This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, this is a fairly common uh, portion of scripture. I know that uh, Pastor Drew has been here recently. But I love it. This, this passion of scripture has had a great impact on my life. Um, so let's pray. Uh, or let's, uh, let's read. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you, he, as in Jesus, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who knew, now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved and not of yourselves. It is a gift from God of, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. That is some good news right there. That is some good news right there. The first lie this morning that we're going to debunk is this. I'm a good person. And I'm not picking on you and I'm not trying to be mean this morning, but this is a lie that many of us have believed. If uh, you ask a lot of people, they say, yeah, I'm, I'm a great person. But, but the very next question you have to ask after that statement is, compared to what? Or compared to who? That will lead us down a very slippery slope. Because what, what happens is this causes us causes us to, to not be honest with ourselves. We give ourselves excuses and justifications for living the way that we're living, for things that we do, because there's always somebody worse. God, at least I'm not smoking crack. God, at least I'm not robbing people at gunpoint. So I'm not that bad. However, in this portion of Scripture that we just read, Paul 
makes it very clear that every single one of us was dead in our trespasses and sin. Every single one of us was, was living a, a selfish life, going after the, the lusts of the flesh, those sinful desires. Every single one of us. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, it says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. There is none righteous among you, not even one. Jeremiah 29, uh, he says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Another version says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can even know how, how wicked it really is? In Colossians 3, the, the, the apostle Paul, he, he goes through this huge list of things, these horrible things, or sexual immorality and, and lying and uh, um, um, debauchery and drunkenness and all these different things, rage. And he's not saying that every single one of us is guilty of those, those sins, but what he's saying is every single one of us is capable. Every single one of us has this like sickness, this, this flesh within us, this selfish nature that needs to be put to death. All right. I know it's hard sometimes to be honest with ourselves. I found in my life, sometimes the most difficult person to be honest with is myself. We let ourselves off the hook a lot, don't we? And all of a sudden we see God's standard and we see how, fall, how short we fall. But he doesn't point with an accusing finger at us. He simply says, I want to change your heart. I want to renew and, and reform your mind so then your behaviors change. We need to crucify that old self so that we can be raised to life and reborn again into a new life, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It turns out that in light of God's standard that none of us are really that good. And that's not to be mean, that's to say that God knew that already. <laughs> and he, he gave us an answer. So compared to God's standard, our righteousness is like filthy rags. The second lie is this. God's love is conditional. God's love is conditional. The problem with this lie is it, it leads us into a lifestyle of, of, of trying to perform for God's approval. A lifestyle uh, of striving for God's approval. I just got to work a little harder. I got to present all my best. I got to kind of just bury all this, 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 this stuff I'm ashamed of in the back and just, just kind of put this facade forward for everybody else and for God and just come before him. But what happens is that we, 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 all our, our boldness to come before him is taken away because we're afraid of rejection. If God, if you see who I really am, you're going to reject me. It's not going to be good enough. And Paul, he, he speaks to this clearly. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. The only thing required in the, in, in the act of giving and receiving of a gift is you have a giver who gives the gift and you have the person who receives the gift. All we do is receive the gift. But oftentimes when we, when we, we, we find ourselves striving we say, okay, well, that means I just got to put everything I am into my career. And I'm all about believers being the best employee at your job. But that's not where your value comes from. Or your, your, your children become your idol, this thing that all of your attention, all of your affection goes towards. Or all these material possessions or whatever it is or hobbies. And all, everything gets out of order in our life. And we're striving just a little more, just a little more. Maybe if I get this degree, I'll, then, 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 then God will be impressed with me. 
Dr. John Lennox, who's a mathematician at Oxford, a philosopher, a um, great debater, a brilliant man, he was uh, at a debate and he was asked in a question and answer time, why do you believe Christianity above every other religion? And he said, because Christianity, as far as I can tell, is the only religion in which God, in which God, the acceptance by God is not based on merit. Is the only religion in which God accepts us and it's not based on our performance or merit. Every other religion, you have to work and work and work and work, and then hopefully at the end of your life, your good outweighs the bad. I mean, our relationships with each other aren't like this. If, if you were about to get married and you said, oh, honey, I love you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, but over the next 40 to 50 years, we're gonna have a, I'm going to have a very rigorous evaluation of your behavior and how you treat me and what you do for me, and then hopefully, hopefully at the end of that 50 years, you pass the test, and then I will accept you. It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? It seems cruel, but that's not what happens. We stand up at an altar, much like this, and we, and we say, and we're, 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 we're in the midst of cupidity, I call it. You know this, like, you're stupid in love, and you don't even know what you're getting yourself into. And we stand up at this altar, and we're making a covenant for things that we, we're not even, we don't have any idea about. Through death do us part. Through good times, through bad times, through sickness and health, I'm going to be with you, and we mean it. And, and we make that covenant, and we stick to it. But we don't even know what we're getting ourselves into. But did you know that God, he knows what he's getting himself into with us. Before, before he chose relationship with you, before he chose relationship with me, God knew what he was getting himself into. He knew there would be times where we would betray him, that we would spit in his face. He knew there would be times when we would deny him. He knew there would be times when we would utterly fail him and do things we said we'd never do again. And yet he still, time after time, chooses relationship with us. He ch time after time, he pursues us and pursues us and says, I want you. I want that one. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. God's love for us, his grace, his mercy is not based on conditions. That does not mean that God approves of everything that we do. But his love for you, his love for me, it's not something that you can work for. It is a gift. It is a gift. Paul is clear. The third lie is this. God couldn't love someone like me. God couldn't love someone like me. The problem with this lie is it causes us to live a life of walking around in defeat, unwilling to take any chances, a life of survival. It's just surviving, self-sufficiency. I love in verse 4 where he says, The God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And raised us up together and made us to sit with the heavenly places with Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Jesus. That doesn't sound like a God who's just putting up with us or tolerating us. That's, or feels obligated to be with us. Listen to the words in which Paul is using. The, his great love. His, the richness of his mercy, his exceeding kindness, 
remember who's writing this. It's Paul. And I think oftentimes we, we look at Paul and we say, well, Paul is like a superhero, right? I can never live up to Paul. But Paul was just a normal person. Right? Obviously, he had an intimacy with God that, that a lot of us aspire to. But, God, but Paul was, was a human. And in his writings, you can see his flaws. You can see his struggles, his discouragement at times. And Paul, the life he came from was, was one that he was an enemy of God. Like he was an enemy of Jesus. And obviously all of us are, the Bible says, like enemies of God when we're not serving him. But he was like an active participant in, in murdering b- believers. Paul is essentially a, b- a murderer. And yet he's sitting here talking about God's, the richness of his mercy, the, his exceeding kindness, his kindness. Uh, that kindness is such a beautiful word to me. Uh, you know, growing up it was like, let's do random acts of kindness, which just kind of means like do something nice for somebody. But that's not kindness. I mean, it is, but kindness is like the essence of someone. It's like going above and beyond. It's like this generosity that flows, this generous love and grace and mercy that flows out, that just loves to, to be generous, loves to be, to be kind. God loves, he delights in showing us mercy. He delights in showing us grace. He delights in showing us who he is. You know, in Zephaniah chapter 3, it says that God rejoices over us. That word rejoice means to, literally means to dance and to twirl about. I'm not a dancer. It takes a lot, it would take a lot for me to get really excited and dance around. But God, when he thinks about you, he thinks about the potential of your life and what you're capable of in him. God is just so excited. He's dancing when he thinks about your life. That's how excited God is. That's how much he loves you. You know, I know Pastor Drew has shared about our family history and um, the brokenness of our upbringing. And, but it was interesting to see our, our two lives. While Drew obviously was not perfect, he... <laughs> uh, it wasn't a joke, but... Uh, he, tore, he chose to run to Jesus in the midst of difficulty. And I chose the very opposite of that. You know, we grew up in a, what, norm, what seemed like a normal Christian home. Our parents served. My, uh, my mom sang every Sunday at church. And my mother fell in this, into this de- depression and never seemed to get out of it. And that led to alcoholism and prescription drug abuse and my parents' separation. My dad getting kicked out of the house for... Um, objecting to the way she was living and uh, us through a period of just having to do everything as kids. Mom not coming home or being so inebriated in bed that she couldn't get out of bed. And um, finally, my parents got divorced. My dad got custody of us. My mom went out and bounced around from place to place, was homeless for quite a while, in and out of treatment. Finally, uh, as a young man, and Paige, you can come come back stage. As a as a young man, I, I can remember uh, one night, my mom, she had been sober for five months. She had actually given her life back to Jesus two weeks prior. And I can remember us going out to eat as a family and being really excited about seeming like things were going to get better and mom and dad were going to get back together. And I remember my mom came in. She tucked me into bed that night. She said, Tony, I love you. I'm glad you're my son. And that was the last time I ever saw her. I can remember that night, my, uh, I wasn't there, but my mom 
she uh, parked her car in, a, in the garage where she was staying, and she turned on the car and, and rolled the windows down and, and took her life. And I, I remember the next day in, the, in my backyard just crying out to God, like, God, it's obvious to me that you do not love me. Otherwise, you would have stopped this. You could have done something. God, you don't, you don't love me, and I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with you. So I'm, I was true to my word, and so over the next nine years of my life, I just was trying to get as far away from God as I could. Um, got involved with drugs and alcohol. I was, fell into depression of my own, suicidal thoughts often. And uh, finally, what would have been my senior year, I turned 18 September, and uh, I got expelled from school kicked out of school for just, I was getting in fights all the time. I was just a very angry guy. Um, and just always being high and never going to class. They want you to go to class when you're in school. And uh, so I remember my dad was like, okay, Tony, you're 18. You're going you're gonna to provide for yourself. You're going to be a man. You're going to go get a job and you're going to go get your own place. And I thought, okay, well, I'm 18. I know everything anyways. So fine. So I moved out. I Worked overnights at this uh, at the pet petrol lube changing oil and semis, which I still to this day don't know how to do, and uh, um, and I just lived in this little apartment. And obviously, as a senior in high school with an apartment, I was very popular. I had a lot of friends that would come over and want to, and you know, uh, really just use me <laughs> for my place. And a sister who would buy me alcohol. And there, I, for the next few years, I would just party and party and party and party. Fill my my body with anything and everything. I wasn't prejudiced. And on the outside, everybody's like, "Man, Tony, that guy is so crazy. He is he's he's so fun. He'll jump out of a window into a tree. It doesn't matter. That guy is so crazy. He's so fun." But on the inside, I was so angry. Most nights, I would I would lie in bed cursing God, saying, "God, I hate you. I hate you. You're the reason my life is like this." Often, I would have thoughts about how I was going to end my life. Finally, after being in trouble with the law on and off again for years, and I found myself in this treatment center, um, treatment center that was like government run, and it was basically get better or go to prison. And it was called the Last Chance Center, so it inspired a lot of hope in me. <laughs> it's your last chance, good luck, you're going to do great, or you're going to go to prison. So I thought, well, whatever, I've been to treatment Many times before I've been in counseling most of my life, I know the things to say, and I'm just going to get through this the next eight months, and it's going to be fine. Go on with my life. But that first week I was there, uh, I remember the dust began to settle in my life. It was the first time that I had been sober in, in years. And I began to think about, what am I doing with my life? Like, I'm going to die. I'm going to OD if I keep going like this or I'm gonna end up dead in a ditch, or I'm gonna go to prison, or I'm just gonna waste my life. But I had no idea what to do. I remember sitting in my room, I'd been there a week, and I, in this room that I shared with five other felons, and uh, I'm sitting there staring out the window. I, I literally, the only thing I had was the clothes I was wearing. I didn't even have a toothbrush. My roommates had sold all my stuff, gotten rid of my stuff. I didn't have anybody. My best friends in the world had deserted me. My girlfriend at that time walked down on me. I had no one, I was all alone. I remember sitting there, I'm looking out the window, I see my dad's car pull up to the front of the place, and I saw my dad get out of the car, 
So my two brothers, Drew and Bryce, get out. They go to the back of the car, they open the trunk, and they start pulling out groceries, toiletries, and clothes. My immediate reaction in that time always was anger. And I thought, what are they doing here? Why are they here? The last time I talked to them, I told them I never wanted to see them again. Why are they here? I don't deserve this kindness. I remember that day with God started to really speak to my life. I didn't know it at the time, but he began to show me the truth of his love. That there's nothing that I could do to deserve it. That it was something that was freely given to me. I didn't have to perform for it. That night, my, my day, my dad gave me this Bible. And uh, he said, Tony, you should read this. And I said, Dad, I'm not going to read this. He said, well, you don't have anything else to do. I said, yeah, you're right, okay. And um, so I opened it up to Psalms. I don't usually tell people to ever just flip open their Bible, but that's honestly what I did. And I opened it up to Psalm 18, where David is talking about how how all the, the, the things that have been going on in his life, how terrible it is. And then he says, and I, I called out to the Lord, I called out to God, and he heard my cry from his temple. And in verse 16, it says, he sent from above and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in my day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me into a broad place. And he delivered me because he delighted in me. I heard those words, he delivered me because he delighted in me. It was like they left off the page and hit me like a ton of bricks in the chest. Over and over, he delivered me because he delighted in me. He delivered me because he delighted in me. And God, for the first time in my life, spoke to my heart. And he said, Tony, I want to deliver you because I delight in you. And I said, God, are you kidding? What is there of value in me worth saving? God, you know, you've seen the things that I've done that I've never told anyone. You've seen the depths of who I am. And yet, you still delight in me. I didn't really know what to do, this, do with this, but over the next coming months, God began to just simply woo my heart. He began to show me who he is. You know, God just delights in showing us who he is. So one day in January, with my dad, we're at this Greasy Spoon Diner, and uh, he sat across the table from me, and he said, Tony, aren't you sick and tired of me? Sick and tired. It's a question that's often asked to addicts. And I thought to myself, I said, yeah, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I'm tired of being empty. I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of hurting people. I'm tired of filling my nose with all this stuff. I'm tired of, I'm just tired. I said, Tony, Tony don't you think it's time you made a change? I said, yeah, Dad, but I don't know what to do. He said, I think it's time you gave your life to Jesus. I'd be, I think that'd be the first place to start. So I said, all right. And he was very surprised. <laughs> you know, my family, I was the one that was like the unsavable one. We went out to our, our 98 Dodge Caravan, this really holy and anointed place. There wasn't a band playing. There wasn't an appeal given. I just simply sat there with my hands like this. And I said, God, I need you. God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. Just forgive me. And that was the first day of my life. I can remember the relief immediately that I felt. The relief of the burdens, the relief of the, 
to anger. My brother says that there was like this immediate tenderizing of my heart that happened. I'm, it's obvious that I'm a weepy person. I was not like this ever before I gave my life to Jesus. Remember the feeling of gratitude of just being accepted, grafted in, adopted. And over the next years, God began to just show me who he was in a greater measure. He began to realign and, and recalibrate my thoughts about who he was, the love that he had for me. I'm going to share a bit more tonight about my story and how I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and what God did in my life since then. But this morning, I believe that these lies are going are gonna to hold us back. They're going to keep us from this, this life that God has been destined, has destined for each one of us. Sin, it just really messes and fogs everything up. It, it, but God removes that sin in it, and then who we really are is revealed. Who he created us to be, who he's seen all along. And I want you to know, if you don't hear anything else that I hear today, that you hear, that I, that if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this, that on your worst day, on your worst day, God has never changed his mind about you. He's never changed his mind about you. Heaven emptied itself of Jesus so that we could know God, that we could have restoration in our life and redemption and a life that we never thought possible. Amen. Let's all stand across this place. We're going to pray. We're going to close. I want to invite you back. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.